Welcome to the Reboot Podcast. We are so glad you're here. Content warning, we do talk about suicide in this episode. It's hard to reach out when you're in the pit of despair, when your inner world feels shattered, scattered, and everything feels overwhelming. It's in these moments that you're typically out of capacity. In fact, it's hard to do much at all from that place. It can feel like you're fumbling around in the dark, trying to find a way out. It feels easier often to collapse into hopelessness. Yet, if we can hold steady with some supportive resources, we can find our way through even the darkest of dark despairings. In this conversation with Liz Fosline and Molly West, authors of the book, Big Feelings, How to Be Okay When Things Are Not Okay, Molly opens up about a dark period of her life when she had thoughts of ending it. She defines despair for us and helps us understand how, in all of its facets, it is not simply depression. Together we talk about ways to resource yourself if you find yourself there, and how to be with someone who is in despair in a supportive, empathetic way. Most importantly, we encourage you to talk to a good ear in your life, a dear friend, a partner, coach, or a therapist. We hope you find this conversation helpful. At Reboot, we believe that work doesn't have to destroy us. Work can be the way that we achieve our fullest selves and in doing so become more effective leaders, colleagues, and human beings. If you're looking for support in unlocking the best way for you to lead and build your company, Reboot Coaching may be the right fit for you. Whether you've stepped into a new leadership role, your company is rapidly scaling, you need help managing your board, or are looking for support as you transition into the next stage of your life, Reboot Coaching is here to help. We know that holding a leadership seat can be isolating and lonely, but you don't have to go it alone. To learn more about Reboot Coaching, head to reboot.io slash coaching. Liz and Molly, it's great to have you back for uh, our our trifecta episode, it feels like, Mm -hmm. (laughs) on big feelings. And um, today we have some really big feelings to cover as we talk about despair and so many of the facets of it. Um, Molly, do you want to, do you want to take us there? Sure. So despair actually was not clinically defined until 2020. Whoa. Yeah. Depression was, but despair was not. So, so, um, so there's seven indicators of despair, feeling hopeless, having low self-esteem, feeling unloved, worrying frequently, loneliness, helplessness, and feeling sorry for oneself. And so some of those do overlap with the diagnostic criteria for major depression or generalized anxiety disorder, but the last three, so loneliness, helplessness, and feeling sorry for oneself, are not symptoms of any other psychiatric disorder. So despair involves feeling depressed and anxious and then piling on hopeless, lonely, unloved, helpless, sorry for yourself. And that really pushes you into the intensity of despair. Depression is really hard and despair takes depression and like ratchets it up a little bit. 
So I, I'm going to talk openly about a really difficult period in my life. And it's still difficult for me to talk about in, in some ways, but it's, I think, really important that we do talk about it. I think that there are so many stories of people having suicidal thoughts and, and acting on those thoughts. And I think those are really important stories to share because those are really hard and horrific stories. And I also think it's important to share stories of people who don't act on those thoughts. There's many people who have these thoughts and don't act on them. And yet so often that never gets shared because they're okay, thankfully, and they're alive. And, and But what that means is we don't always know how common they are. So for me, I had never had any history of, of depression even, um, let alone suicidal thoughts. I went through a, a difficult time period in, in 2019. Our book had just come out. I, I was really burned out with dealing with that. I was dealing with some chronic injuries that were just really not going away. And I had just moved across the country. I was really lonely. I was working for a job that was remote before anyone else was remote. So I was the only person who was remote. I was dealing with some infertility and everything just sort of snowballed. I stopped sleeping because I was having so much anxiety. And when you stop sleeping for a couple of weeks, things get really hard <laughs> emotionally. And it just got to the point where I was like, I don't really want to keep waking up each morning. I couldn't see how it could possibly get better. My doctors didn't know what was going on. And they were like, you shouldn't be feeling this pain to the point where some of them didn't believe me and some of them were just like baffled. I didn't know how I would get out of feeling the anxiety and depression, how I would work through the infertility issues, how I would make friends. And when I started having those thoughts, they were really scary because I had never had the thoughts before. And I had never talked to anyone about having these kind of thoughts. And so I immediately was ashamed of them. I, I thought, how will I ever go back to being quote unquote normal now that I've had these thoughts? Like, you know, is this now this is who I am for the rest of my life and I'm always going to, you know, have these thoughts. So I kept them inside for, for a, a long period of time. They just kept getting more and more intense to the point where at the lowest of low, there was a period of time where I was like, okay, like I am having these thoughts so frequently about not wanting to be alive that maybe I should take some action on it. Thankfully I didn't, but I had started to like make a plan for how I might do that. And I just really scared myself. And so I, I opened up to my husband and to my therapist and thankfully they were really supportive. And, you know, my husband, while saying, you know, it's not okay that you're, you know, you're, you want to take action on these things, like taking action is not okay. You know, it's okay. It's, it, it's normal for you to have these thoughts and let's talk about them. And I want you to keep telling me about them. And my therapist sort of put it in context of like, you know, of course it's, you know, we, we don't want you to take action on them, but it is okay to have the thoughts. And that like, she described them as sort of looking over the edge, like looking over like, okay, you know, do I want to be alive? Do I want to um, take take action or not. And, and I, and I scared myself enough from sort of looking over the edge. And I was like, no, I really don't want to do that. You know, it's not that I want to kill myself. It's just that I, I really, it's hard being alive right now. And I, and I don't see an end to this. So 
I met with a therapist like a couple times a week. Um, and I say that because I think for some people that sounds like a lot, but, but that's what I needed. Like I needed to talk to her two or three times a week to have another checkpoint to be like, okay, you know, it's Tuesday. I can talk to you again about this on Thursday. It won't be a full week before we get to talk about it again. I went on medication. It took a couple different tries to get on a medication that helped. And that's one of the frustrating things about going through that process is like, it takes four to six weeks for the medication to check in. And at that time, things were so bad that it was like I was having trouble getting through like an hour. And so to think about having to like wait four to six weeks seemed like a really long time. But eventually, I, I after a couple tries, I found a medication that was helpful. And the other thing that really helped was reading about other people's experience of going through moments like this. Um, I couldn't read really anything else except for people's experience of going through despair and depression. I'm a huge reader. I get so much comfort in reading. And so it was it was also really a sign of how bad things were for me that I, I just couldn't concentrate on anything else. I couldn't read fiction books. I couldn't read you know, broader nonfiction topics. I, I could, you know, barely do my work. But what really helped was, was reading about other people's experience, especially people who had worked through these issues, who'd come out the other side and were no longer having as intense thoughts or, or no longer were having thoughts about wanting to kill themselves. And um, so that's what really motivated me to write about it was because there weren't that many of those books and I like read them and reread them over and over again. And they just provided so much solace for me in that moment. So I'll stop there. I know I've said a lot there. What, what do you think it was in those books? It was people just speaking really honestly about how bad it was inside their brains at the time. And yet also writing about it after and having the perspective of seeing that's what was going on in my mind then, but that's not what's going on in my mind now. And like, I was able to work through those things. There, I remember listening to, there's a podcast called On Being, which I love um, with Krista Tippett. And she has a whole podcast that's dedicated to depression. And... There's a, a person on it named Parker Palmer, um, who some some of your listeners may be familiar with. Um, he's in sort of a similar space in terms of thinking about Buddhism and adult learning and all of that. And, and he spoke very eloquently about some deep periods of depression that he went through where the only thing that he could do was take walks by himself in the middle of the night when no one else was up. Because he felt like even just going outside in the middle of the day was too overwhelming. Seeing other people who were more functional than him, who were you know going about their lives, who might look at him and might judge him, was completely overwhelming. And so the only time that he felt safe and comfortable going outside was like at two a.m. when no one else was outside. And I was like, yeah, I I really get that because getting out of my space was really hard, and I just felt so off track and so low that I was triggered by everyone else, seeing everyone else around me who seemingly was, were not having the problems that I was having. Um, 
So he was just able, I think, to articulate the like deep isolation, the loneliness, the hopelessness that I was feeling. And yet again, like he came out of it and he's gone through several different periods of that. And and it took time, but but he did work his way out of that. And, and just having that as reassurance that this wasn't like a one-way street was really helpful. Yeah. I'm remembering the image in big feelings that Liz drew about despair and despair shared, you know, like how big despair feels when it's shared. And then of course, how, how much bigger it feels when it's shared with like the wrong people. What I felt like I was hearing you kind of connect with was, oh, I'm not alone here. Like this feels like crap inside of me. Like the depths of despair, like a swirling vortex of no goodness. And yet people have done it and they've come out the other side. So it's like you had a model, you know, or something to connect with that you didn't feel totally isolated. Yes, exactly. Um, I think there are spaces where we we can find inspiration for coming out of this like deep dark hole um some people turn to faith and you know it's interesting i had never really been a person of faith at all and i still question a lot of things but I had started, my, my husband is Jewish and we had started going to temple occasionally. And that was a space where it was okay to show up and not be totally together. And it was okay to cry. And it was okay to talk about like really difficult things. And, you know, outside of therapy and spaces of faith and, you know, support groups, there's not a lot of spaces where we have to talk about these things. And so again, like, I just think, we miss out on the fact that the many other people have gone through them or are going through them. And so that's why I think, you know, the books and the shared stories were helpful. And also just my therapist saying, this is way more common than you realize, you know, and she as a therapist sees that because she has access to that and she has conversations all day with people. But I didn't know, you know, I was like, I'm the, I mean, I knew that I wasn't the only one, but, you know, I was like, well, you know, this feels so unique and so isolating to me. Um, so yeah, I think having those those worked examples is is really helpful. The other thing that and I write about this in the book is like, you never know what small words people are gonna say that really matter. So there when I was talking to my therapist in one of my sessions, I said, you know, I just want to give up. Like I'm so tired. I'm so tired of trying. I have been dealing with this pain for so long. I have no energy left to fix my life. My life is a total mess. You know, like I just kind of want to give up. Like that seems like the easier option right now. And she said to me, that doesn't sound like the Molly that I know. You know, you giving up, like that doesn't sound like who you actually are at your deepest level. And I thought about that a lot because I was like, "Mm," like, you know, I guess she sees that in me. Maybe I can see that in myself. Um, another thing we wrote about in the book was was a therapist saying to some to their patient, um, 
you know, I would really miss you if you were gone. And just that really helped that person. Even if it's just one person saying, I would really miss you can make a life or, or death difference. So in these moments, it's like you're so low that you're clinging for any sort of hope, any sort of reason. And sometimes if you can't give that to yourself, like getting it from someone else can be helpful. Ollie, I know you and I have talked about, and you write about this in the book too, that like reaching out to people who had been through something similar. So this is different than reading about it, but then actually talking to people, either friends or other people you identified. And this came up in a conversation with a friend recently that I had, and I'd love to hear more. I don't think I've ever heard this is like how you identified those people and then how you even broached that conversation. Well, I'm really lucky to have two friends who are therapists. <laughs> so that was like the, the easy place to start where I was like, well, I they should be open to these conversations. But even that was really hard. It took, um, with one of my friends, we hadn't talked in a couple of months. She had no idea what was going on. I texted her and I said, you know, hey, we haven't caught up in a while. You know, do you have a few minutes? And so, you know, we, we chatted and... I asked her to go, you know, it's always like, who's going to catch the other person up first? And so I sort of asked her to give me her update first, because I knew that once I started giving my update, like that was going to be the major topic of conversation. So she sort of gave me her update. And I said, you know, I am actually calling you because things have been really hard. And, you know, it's hard for me to share this with you. But like, I've been feeling really low. I I, I don't know who to reach out and talk to about this other than, you know, like my, my husband and my therapist, but, you know, I, I just have been feeling really low and, and have been having really dark thoughts. And she sort of turned on her therapist, like, um, six cents. And she was like, okay, you know, like what kind of dark thoughts? And I said, you know, I, I have been having thoughts where I don't really want to be alive anymore. And I started crying and she, you know, sort of like held space for me to cry. And she was very accepting. And, you know, she was like, you know, I hear that. Um, and is it okay if I keep checking in with you about that? Is it okay if I check in with Chris, your, you know, your husband about that? I want to make sure that like he has the the tools and skills to like be able to have some of these conversations with you. I want to make sure that he's doing okay. Like, so she just sort of took control of the conversation at a time when I was not able to. And that's the training that you get being a therapist or a social worker. She then said, is it okay if I share this with a couple of our other friends who I think you would, you would want to talk to about this so that I didn't have to do that work? Because Every time I tried to share it, I would start crying or or get, you know, really scared of sharing it. And so that's something that I think, you know, if you if you're in a friend group, you can offer to do is say, you know, is it okay if I let some people know what you're going through so that they can reach out and be supportive? And of course, if I had said no, she would have respected that. But so I didn't have to do some of the catch up and people just called and said, you know, hey, I heard from 
this person? What's going on? You know, I really care about you. Is there, you know, what can I do? She kept checking in. She like, there was a couple of months where she would text me every single day, you know, and it didn't require a response, but it's just sort of like, you know, Hey, here's, here's what's going on in my day. You know, what's going on in your day or, you know, some funny moment or something like that. And again, it was like, I was struggling to make it through an hour of time. And so to get that message every day was sort of like, okay, like, yeah, like I'm still here. And like, I'm still getting your text message the next day. Like I'm, I, I woke up today and like, I'm still here. Um, and then there were other people that I just sort of knew were not going to get it. And so I either just chose to not be in communication with them or I texted them or had a short phone call that said, I'm really, you know, I'm not meaning to ignore you or our friendship, but I'm in a really bad place right now. I just don't have the capacity to connect in the same way. And I hope you can understand that and have patience. And I think that that helped save some of the friendships that otherwise would have fallen away because I I didn't just go radio silent, right? I said like, you know, I hope you can have patience with me, but like, I just can't show up in this friendship in the same way. So they understood to some degree what was going on. So yeah, it was, it was a mix of those things. The checking in on texting, I think as I remember reading that when you first wrote it and sent me a draft and thought that was just such a nice thing to do. And we touched on this in the, in our conversation around chronic pain, but also speaks to this. It's a nice way to show up in an ongoing basis you know, it's, um, and I've, I mean, not kind of to the same depth, but when I've gone through difficult periods, I've also had friends who just texted, you know, every couple of days said, Hey, how are you? And then I agree like the, I'm thinking of you, no need to respond. Um, I think creating like I'm here, but there's no pressure. I, I think often at least, and again, probably not to the same depth, but when I feel overwhelmed or depressed, it sometimes can be even hard to like send off a text message. Mm-hmm. And so it's really nice then to be like, okay, there's no obligation here. It's just completely like no strings attached. Someone's just saying hi and saying they care. Yeah. And Liz, you know, you, you shared this example of when your father-in-law was dying of cancer and and your friend reached out. Do you want to share that story of like people reaching out with specifics? Yeah, I think often what happens, which is again, people are very well intentioned, but they'll say like, let me know if you need anything or I'm here for you. And it's, this was, yeah, when I, when my father-in-law was kind of in the last days of his life and there, you know, it was just a completely overwhelming time. And I really appreciated all of those comments, but it was also, I had no idea how people could help me. I just, it was completely beyond my capacity to come up with anything. Um, And then it almost felt, I don't want to say a burden, but it was, yeah, I was just like, I have, I don't know. (laughs) I just like, can't even think about this. I appreciate it. Thank you. And so then one of my friends who actually had been through something really similar texted me was she just said, Hey, I'm thinking about you. Here are three things that you can, that I can do for you at any point. You just text me the number and I'll do that thing. Number one, I will cook you something or bake you something delicious and drop it off. Two, I will pick up the phone and I will just listen to whatever you need to talk about. Three, I will just be here to text you. So if it's 2am, if I'm awake, 
you know, if you say, Hey, this is me doing three, I will know that it's a real priority that I should be available to text with you for like 15 minutes or 20 minutes. And it was so help. Like it was just such a lovely text. Um, because I think sometimes that is what you need. You just need a lifeline. You just need someone who, you know, will pick up the phone and who you can just say whatever to. Um, and yeah, then later, a couple years later when she was going through, uh, or a year later, she was going through a similarly hard time. I just said, Hey, I just want to offer you the same three things. And then it was once she called me from her car and was just really like sobbing and was really going through it. And, you know, and it wasn't, Hey, are you around? Is it okay? It, it was just like, I, we both had already kind of set this. You just text me the number two. I know what it means. I can be here for you. Um, so I think, you know, when you see someone going through something really hard, also offering concrete ways that you can help, and it doesn't have to be a big thing. It really can be, you can just text me at any point and I get it and I will be here for you. Um, and I think that can be really comforting. That's really amazing. Just as a, as a little structural setup, because I remember in some of the moments where, um, where I, I felt like, I don't know, like my inner world was just shattered and I was like picking up pieces of my psyche on the bathroom floor on some mornings, you know, and the, through some of the medications that I had through, through Lyme treatment were, were not great, um, to live through. And, and I, I mean, I am not the kind of person who really had a lot of spent a lot of time in kind of the dark spaces of the psyche. So for me to arrive there, it was just kind of a shocker, but I remember how isolating it felt, how alone I felt, how I felt like I was really in a, in a box or almost like I was almost being nailed in a pine box to some degree throughout treatment. But in the, in the darkest moments, like I couldn't even reach outward because it took so much, whatever capacity I had was really just around whatever core functioning I needed to do, whether it was like moving from room to room or getting myself something to drink. But on the inside, it was just so dark and so painful that reaching out was so hard. And so to have a structure like that, where somebody's basically saying to you, Hey, just, just give me like, throw me a little, throw me a little something and I'm going to be there and we know the code, that's a, it's a really amazing, amazing move because there's nothing worse, I think, than being in the, that hyper-compromised space on the inside and having somebody kind of in your external world think you can function and reason and, and ask for your own needs the way that you could if you were 100% resourced and you know, it was bright and sunny on, on the inside. It's, it's not, you know, you're two totally different people really. Yeah. I mean, just you're spending so much of your limited 
mental capacity, just trying to make it through the day. And as you said, like feeding yourself, um, <laughs> getting out of bed, taking a shower. For me, it was like a big deal if I went to the drugstore, you know, let alone like doing work or being creative or being supportive for friends. And, and it is amazing. Like I going from being a pretty productive person to experiencing deep despair was very humbling. Like what I could have done previously in a day versus, you know, for that couple month period that I, what I was doing, I was, it was like, wow, I, you know, I have zero motivation. I am not really doing anything. Um, and your friends or the people who are, in, you know, in contact with you may not know what's going on. And so their expectation of you is like, well, of course this person should be able to call me or go out to lunch or, you know, do their work. You know, like they they don't always see the 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 decline into that space. So that's where I think, yeah, like if you can let a few people in to what's going on, it doesn't need to be your whole extended family or friend group or colleagues, but, you know, let a few people in so they know how bad things are and they can step in to be helpful in some way and automate some of that, it is easier. And that's why, you know, again, like I just, I didn't need to catch my therapist up. My therapist knew exactly how bad things were. So talking to her two to three times a week is really helpful because I didn't need to like prepare for it. Um, and then once this one friend knew, like she knew how bad it was. And so again, like it was, it was less work to sort of text with her and be like, yeah, I'm having a really bad day. You know, it's been really hard this morning versus like the energy that it would take to catch someone else up to to how bad things were. Um, so, yeah, I think that's a good point. And, you know, I think one of the things that helped me get out of it, I mean, medication, therapy, time, um, reading other people's experience, but also just setting really small intentions. And that's what we talk about in the book. It's like one of the scariest parts about sliding into despair is it's like, well, what is rock bottom for me? I don't know what it is. And like, you know, when you're sort of going down into it, it's like, well, every day is worse than before. Where You're like, I'm now having more suicidal thoughts more frequently, more intensely. I'm able to do less work. Um, you know, I'm crying more times a day. Like, it's just like, it gets worse and worse and worse and worse. And you're like, I don't know what the bottom is. I don't know when I'm going to hit the bottom or what that's going to look like for me. And doing things that help pull you out of that, even if they are very small, is the way to turn that around. So for me, I mentioned going to the drugstore. I mean, it sounds like a small thing, but it was like, okay, I got out of bed today and I drove to the drugstore and I bought myself something or I took a shower or I watched something on TV and I managed to not cry for an hour while I was watching something on TV. I mean, we're talking like baby, baby, baby steps. And those things do add up over time and start to push back against some of the other really pressing thoughts, scary thoughts. And very slowly, you go from having, I was having the thoughts like hourly to like a few times a day to once a day, then once a week. And like, you know, over the course of 
three or four months, things did get significantly better. They weren't all the way better, but they got a lot better. And then it was like another year or so of, of really like slowly coming out of the depth. And that was the thing that I didn't know. Like when I was in the at rock bottom, it was like, well, how can I possibly turn this around? And now looking back, I can see like, okay, it was these like really small actions, which do take a lot of energy, but over time add up. One of the things we write about in the book too, Molly, that I think you're like speaking to a bit is also, I think we all hold often without even knowing it, just this idea of where we should be in life and the path that we should be on. And I'm sure even now I have plans that I haven't really articulated or I'm not conscious about for like my next six months, my next year, what I want that to look like. And so I think it's also, obviously plans are great. Goals can be very motivating, but in those really hard moments or periods, even just accepting that like the most important thing is to get through it and letting go of the pressure to have achieved a certain something to be in a certain place because of your age, because of your privilege, because of your whatever it might be. Um, I think we often layer on top of the thing we're going through. I shouldn't feel like this. Or what about this plan? What about this path that I'm supposed to be on? And then Molly, I know you write too how kind of having to, and this is, I think, again, really goes back to issues around chronic pain or when you lose a big part of your identity that you thought was sort of fixed and you would never have to let go of, it gives you a lot more empathy for people who are in different places or, um, yeah, who will eventually go through something similar, uh, even if they haven't yet. Yeah, I think for me, it was finding places to be and people to be around that it was okay for me to be quote unquote off track. And I think the more that, you know, you, you work up into the years of your life, if you are so lucky, like you realize lots of people get off track at many different times. And, and the idea of being on track, you know, is is not very helpful, but for me, that meant being around people who um, were dealing with other types of illness, pain. Um, I've, went to our uh, local pool, our, our community pool in Los Angeles, where a lot of people go for healing purposes, whether they're healing from some sort of injury or they're dealing with anxiety and depression, like just being in water is very healing. And so I connected with a lot of people there who were totally on different life paths. You know, there's a, there's a woman who, um, and never married, never had children, you know, always lived very independently, who I became very close with. Um, people from just tons of walks of life who I wouldn't have met through my work or friend group. And and those were really nice spaces to be in, to be around people and not feel lonely, but also to not feel like, okay, everyone I talk to doesn't understand what I'm going through, or they're supposedly on track with their life. Um, so finding those spaces and people to be with can be helpful. I think, yeah, what I've, I found really nice is also just intergenerational, Mm -hmm. um, friendships and 
groups to be part of, which I think we have lost somewhat in the modern world where you live in a big city, everyone's, you know, in, in a similar age group, life experience. And I think then it's really easy to feel off track because again, you're holding yourself against people who are just in similar places. Um, so during the pandemic, um, my husband and I live on this little alley in San Francisco and we've become really, really close with a lot of people who have lived here and have lived here for I don't know, 30 plus years. Um, so they're older than my husband and I are. And I think in the city like San Francisco, which is really transient, it's rare to have this sort of deep seated community of people. Um, and it's just been so nice <laughs> because, you know, in the first year that my husband and I were dating, we went to 17 weddings or, I mean, it was an absolutely outrageous number and just to be with people who, you know, some of their friends have gotten divorced. Like it, it's just a different, it just puts into perspective that people's lives take all these different forms things happen to people at very different times and that's actually totally normal. Um, and so I found it just really reassuring also to be around people who, yeah, I think are just maybe more established in their careers or I don't know, they're just like, eh, it's not the most important thing in the world. You just need to chill out. Why are you freaking out? Um, one of my neighbors said to me, everyone <laughs> says that their twenties are terrible but your thirties are terrible too, because you're forced to make all these really big decisions and everything feels like it's going to be the rest of your life. And then as time goes on, you realize that it's not the rest of your life and you, there's still all this potential for change and growth and new things to happen. Um, so those have been just really magical friendships that I find very comforting too that it's not, it's just a, it's a perspective that I think is really, really valuable to have. Um, and probably that my parents have, but I just don't listen to them. So <laughs> it's nice to have someone else reiterate. Another thing I'll share about, you know, just despair in general. I think we, we see this happen, like, you know, when, when you hear about um, celebrities going through difficult times and you're like, but they're a celebrity. They have so much money. Like they're famous. How could they possibly be dealing with this? And I think um, to the outside perspective, so to people who didn't, who weren't very close in touch with me throughout that time period, things looked like they were going really well, right? Like, so Liz and I had written a book. It did really well. I had started a new job. Um, I had moved across the country. I had stopped posting, I'd stopped going on social media and stopped posting on social media, but Liz and I shared an account, the at Liz and Molly account. So that was still active. And so I think for many people, it was like, wow, like things are going really well for her, you know, like why would they not be? And since the book has come out and, and people have read this, they're very surprised that like, that I went through this. And I've also been really surprised about people who have reached out to me, former colleagues, cousins, hmm. um, who have said, you know, thank you so much for writing about this. I went through a really similar experience. You know, it wasn't exactly the same, but like I had a period of deep despair in my late 20s or I am dealing with a chronic health issue that caused me to, you know, not want to live. And I, I had similar thoughts. And so 
you just never know. And I know that sounds very trite, but like you just really don't know what someone else is going through by based on what they're posting on LinkedIn, what they're posting on social media. And it is that makes it, I think, even more isolating. Like when it's like, well, not only am I going through this thing and it feels like, you know, I don't have a lot of people who are going through it with me, but like people don't even know that I'm going through it um, adds to that level of feeling disconnected. And and so one of the things that, that helped, and again, this sounds sort of woo-woo, but I did a lot like where I was falling asleep and in moments of, of like deep despair, my brain kept cycling through like, you know, you're worthless. You shouldn't be alive. Nothing's going on track. You know, you're not being a helpful spouse. You're not being a helpful daughter or sister. You're barely showing up at work. You know, it's like blah, blah, blah keeps going. And I think one of the things that, that helped me, was connecting to like a deeper or broader sense of the suffering in the world. So it's like, you know, how do I have the strength to go on when I have no strength? You know, where do I turn to for patience to keep going with my life when I've totally run out of patience and the end is nowhere in sight? And somehow like connecting on a deeper or spiritual level to other people who are suffering in the world, even though I didn't know them. So other people who were sick or other people who were living on the streets or um, dealing with other crises, like I would sort of tune in to them and feel a connection across the world and feel less alone. And I know that sounds strange, um, but that was very comforting. And I would do that a lot of the nights when I was like having trouble falling asleep. Um, so I, you know, I think you can find a, a sense of that connection, even just beyond the people in your own community. Yeah. I like that you frame it as connection. Cause this is also in the book. And I think this is something your friend said to you where she said, suffering is suffering. Um, and so it's a nice example of finding that connection, but without using it as a way to make yourself feel worse of these people have it so much worse than I do. How could I even be feeling badly? And I think this goes similar to what you were saying about people's perception of us. Um, yeah, I just, I come back to that a lot. The suffering is suffering no matter where you are. Um, and I think a really important step to feeling better is removing that layer of, I shouldn't be feeling this, um, because that that's just suppression and it's, it's not really helpful. Like you feel what you feel. Sometimes it's situational. Sometimes it's just your brain chemistry is firing off. I don't want to say the wrong thing, but it's misfiring and that's going to make you feel terrible. Even if your circumstances seem really wonderful relative to someone else's. Um, so I think that's also really, a really important message for people to hear. I think, um, the word humanity kind of keeps popping into my mind, um, over the last few minutes as, as I've been listening to you kind of talk about this and, and especially in terms of, you know, we, we all have this perception of, 
you know, the person next door or, you know, our friends or our colleagues or the celebrity, the latest celebrity in the news. Right. And, um, it's, but at, at the core behind, behind all the, the glossy pages and the headlines and all, all those kind of, um, performative pieces and the projection screen, you know, there's a real human in there and, and yes, suffering is suffering. And on many levels, like we all have it and chronic pain, the depths of despair, like it's like the super leveling experience where it, like it pierces through kind of all the superficial layers in which we connect with each other or think we connect with each other, right? Or see each other even. And yet to be able to see someone or be with someone in that space, it's the same way, you know, your friend Liz was giving you that really awesome like text structure of choose one through three. I'm available for any at any time, right? Like um, to be able to be with someone in that space is to kind of cut through um, so much kind of dross and to really connect with, I think, just the core of being human, but just to be with someone um, with zero expectations, no guilt, no obligations, um, no shame, no blame, none of that. It's just like, here I am. I feel like extreme crap right now. My life feels like it's a melted pile of goo. And to still have someone be there for you and just say, hey, I see you. I know you're not this but here we are. And sometimes that's all you need. Yeah. I think we put a lot of pressure on ourselves to show up as valuable. And, you know, this touches on a couple other topics, but I really struggled with like, well, why is my worth living if I don't feel like I'm being a good partner or a good friend or a good family member or a good worker or, you know, able to do the things that I used to be able to do. And that I think is is how friends can really show up, which is like, no, like even without all of that, I still want to be your friend. And this is a phase of our friendship and you will be there for me later when I'm dealing with this, just like I'm here for you. And there's lots of ups and downs. So what came to mind was, I remember, so I, for context, grew up in a very emotionally suppressed household where any big display of emotion was it essentially didn't happen. And on the rare occasions that did, it was very destabilizing and terrifying. Um, and so I, I would say in my early twenties, both at work, but then all in my personal relationships as well, kind of going back to what Molly said, where we feel like we have to show up as valuable. I really thought I had to show up as perfect as mm. I, you know, I could never show that I was anxious. I just always had to have everything put together. And that was why someone would love me. And truly one of the most transformative moments was in my late twenties. And I was dating someone when I lived in New York. And I remember one night I had a complete panic attack. I mean, I was just like freaking out. I don't even remember what caused it, but I was in my opinion at the time, the worst version of myself and I could not calm down. And I remember waking up the next day and I was just, I really was like, okay, that relationship is over. Um, you know, there's no coming back from this. And 
my boyfriend at the time. Yeah. He just came over the next day, acted like nothing was wrong. And I was floored. And then he said, you know, that's just a part of you. We all have panic attacks. It doesn't negate everything else that I like about you. You probably could see a therapist and there's some things you could do to feel better that I want you to do just for you. But it hadn't even occurred to him that we would not be dating after that. Mm -hmm. And to me, that was like transformational, that it was a, a moment of who I was as opposed to destroying every good part of me, which is how I was seeing it. And I, and I think that I just still think back to that. And now I try to do that for friends and in my, you know, with my husband, um, it is, it's so powerful to have someone and not only powerful, but reassuring to have someone say, yeah, you know, this probably isn't you at your best. They don't sugarcoat it or yes, you're feeling terrible. Uh, and I want to be here to help you, but you're still all these other wonderful parts of yourself. Those still exist. And this is the whole of who you are. And I'm just here for the whole of you. Um, I think it's just, it's like, we so rarely get that message that it's really life changing when we do. And I would say that that level of um, presence and being without needing anything from each other is so healing mm -hmm. for both parties, you know? Because it is the, I am here, and you are there, and here we are. But we're all okay. I don't need anything from you. You don't need anything from me. We're just okay yeah. with each other. And even something, it seems like so simple as that, um, can be so profound, especially if our nervous systems haven't known that growing up, you know, when we've known yeah. the alternative where we always had to perform, we always had to be doing something for something else or saving someone or being emotionally available for someone or whatever, whatever our, our, um, I don't know, pattern was in the family dynamic, but, but to just be and to be with someone as, I think it's so healing. Is there, is there anything else that we feel like we want to touch on to kind of wrap up? I, I would love to end by just saying, so if you are experiencing despair or suicidal thoughts, I just want you to know that it is possible to work through those thoughts. I am a living, breathing example of that. Um, and it does take a lot of work, as I mentioned, therapy, medication, time, small actions, but it's possible. Um, and then the other thing is if you have someone in your life who is in the middle of that, to not worry about bringing it up, right? So sometimes we think like we're going to plant the idea of in the person's head and the person's already thinking about it. If, if they brought it to you, they're already thinking about it and you're not going to make them think about it more. Um, and and really the best thing you can do is is be open to talking about it of course say you know i it's not okay for you to take action on this and make sure that they're getting the mental health support that they need but to to make it an okay thing to talk about um you know as long as there's no imminent danger 
um, to just say, I want to stay in conversation about this. Is it okay if I keep checking in with you about this can be the most helpful thing to do. Thank you for that. I'm so glad you made it through. I'm so glad you're here. Thank you. <laughs> you too. too. Um, well, I know this this topic isn't um, it's not the brightest and the sunniest, but I think talking about it just helps us normalize it because, as as you said, it's it's not that these feelings aren't under the surface for a lot of folks or on the surface for a lot of folks. And I love that um, we just kind of dove in and, and gave it some good airtime because I, I hope it helps other people feel, feel less alone. Well, thanks for letting us talk about it. Yeah. yeah. Thank you both. If you enjoyed this episode and want to hear more, head to reboot.io slash podcast to explore past and present seasons of our podcast conversations. To help more people find and enjoy the Reboot podcast, consider leaving us a review on iTunes. You can find our step-by-step guide for leaving reviews in the show notes of each episode. And don't forget to join our mailing list at reboot.io slash sign up so you'll never miss an episode. Thank you for listening. At Reboot, we often talk about the value of relationships in mirroring back to us our blind spots. Now, all honest feedback is valuable, and it's great if your culture supports a constant flow of feedback. But it's often helpful for leaders to take deeper dives into radical self-inquiry, giving themselves focused and intentional space to examine the patterns of behavior that are either serving them or not serving their teams and their missions. 360 reviews are a really powerful tool that can help leaders make course corrections, supporting both individual growth and the growth of the company. While there are many approaches to 360s out there, what we have found to be the most helpful to our clients is to approach the 360s as an extension of the coaching conversation. Most leaders don't care how they rate numerically on a list of abstract capacities. And even if they do, it's tough for them to really know how to make use of that kind of data. But if they can hear through the voices of their colleagues, how their behavior is making impact, and if they can be helped by a coach to see more clearly the choices available to them for change, the benefits can be immense. If you'd like to learn more about Reboot 360s, you can go to reboot.io slash 360.